Welcome to another episode of the CAMS Digital podcast. CAMS Digital is part of GM Digital, a research unit within the Greater Manchester Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust, affiliated to the Centre of Women's Mental Health at the University of Manchester. GM Digital specialises in developing and evaluating digital technologies, really looking at how these can benefit the mental health of children, young people and their families. Usually the CAMS Digital podcasts are recorded online, but for the first time we were able to do an in-person conversation instead. So recently I went to the University of Sussex and met with Dr Faith Matcham. She is a health psychologist specialising in mental physical comorbidity and the use of digital technologies in measuring chronic health conditions. She recently joined the University of Sussex as a lecturer in clinical psychology. Alongside this, she has a really exciting portfolio of research relating to the use and application of digital technologies across a range of clinical and societal contexts. As you can imagine, I was really excited to meet with Dr Faith Matcham, and I'm also really excited to share the conversation that I had with her, with you, today. So without further ado, I'm going to take you back in time and you can listen to the conversation I had when I went to the University of Sussex and met with Dr Faith Matcham. So welcome to the podcast today. Um, let's start off by hearing a little bit about your current role, perhaps maybe telling us what a typical week looks like, if there is such a thing. Mm, there's no such thing, <laughs> um, which is partly why I really like, really like this job. So I am a lecturer at the University of Sussex. I was appointed in April and I am an education and research lecturer, which means that my time is split between teaching responsibilities and um, research. Um, so yeah, I'm a co-convener for one of the master's courses here and I supervise undergraduate and postgraduate research um, students. And um, in terms of my research, which makes up um, the rest of my week, I um, am involved in a range of different grants and um, research projects which investigate the use of digital technologies across a range of different contexts and scenarios to answer different health-related questions. Fantastic. We at CAMS Digital, we spend a lot of time evaluating the use of technology and digital interventions and looking at what will work and what won't work to help children, young people and families. Um, and as you said, digital tech has played a big role in your work. And I wondered, is there a particular area or time that the use of digital tech has really impressed you or you found it to be the most valuable? I find it all pretty impressive. Yeah, no, it um, <laughs> I'm always a bit bewildered by how I sort of ended up, um, ended up in this field because it's always surprising me as to what the capabilities are. Mm. Um, and, you know, I started, when I started university, as an undergraduate, it wasn't normal for students to have laptops. We all um, used computers that were available in the library. Um, there were a few students that had laptops and, you know, we had smartphones, but they weren't really smart. They were just, they weren't touched, they weren't, they weren't smartphones. They just had a little bit of internet. Um, yeah. So you could Google stuff. Um, and that wasn't, that long ago. You see, I've only ever taken two books out of the library. It's all online. So totally online. We we used to have to spend an absolute fortune on textbooks. And I remember 
um, having to do it in multiple trips because they were so heavy to carry. And, you know, we, I, I hand wrote my submissions, you know, and got handwritten feedback. And this wasn't uh, that long ago. This was no. like towards like 2011. Um, so thinking of the change now, um, and now coming back as a lecturer at the same university that I studied at, seeing what's changed in that context in the last 10 years. Yeah, it must be about 11 10, years, yeah. 12 years. Um, is astounding. It sounds huge when you put it like that and you yeah. reflect even just 10 years ago. Like Facebook came out maybe halfway through my first year. See, I'm the generation that even though I'm not that far behind, that's just been our norm. I know. Day one. I know. And for us, totally it, was a, normal. it was absolutely incredible that these people that we just met, um, that we'd just been put into walls of residence with, we suddenly had this online platform to communicate with each other because before that, all we had was like MSN Messenger. So, which was rubbish. So even in <clears throat> the, the environment of being a student and receiving higher education and now delivering higher education, having students turn up with their own laptops, like I only recently realized I don't need to print out course materials because no. all the students bring all their own equipment, all their own stuff. It's so, it's still, it's such a development. And then when you think about the, developments that are happening in healthcare and sort of wider electronic health records the fact that in hospital you don't have a file anymore you've got a, a computer file in every single area the the possibilities the change in the last decade has been um, unprecedented and exciting and it so I'm impressed by everything, frankly. And every time I see a new app or a new system or a new um, way of uh, measuring something or understanding something, uh, my mind is blown because I'm not one of those people that comes up with these kinds of technologies. I'm a person who um, thinks about how we can use it to improve our, our yes. population yeah. and our health and our healthcare delivery. Um, so, yeah, I'm particularly excited, I think, like make a more specific answer to your question, unless of me rambling about how things have changed. But I think what I'm really excited about is the opportunity for personalized care. I think particularly in, well, across the board really, but I think the physical healthcare world is advancing a bit faster for, you know, due to genetic yeah. testing and, 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 and such like. I think the one size fits all approach to psychological treatment is not uh, not great. I don't think it's no. I don't think it's useful. And I think the opportunity to collect information about an individual and provide them with an intervention that has been tailored to them, uh, tailored to their own data, to their own preferences, to their own um, device and how they use that device, but then also for them to access when they are able and ready to access it, I think is really exciting. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, I think it's empowering the, the patient or the, the user or the service user and it's kind of redistributing that control a little bit rather than therapy being given to you. You're slightly put more at the centre yeah. um, and creating your own direction a little bit more. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. 
I think it definitely balances the scales in terms of encouraging people who are receiving psychological services to be active recipients, active, active, not recipient, active participants in their care, um, rather than that traditional didactic model of healthcare, that paternalistic approach where you as the patient are, um, you know, a lesser person, you're attending the doctor who is going to tell you what to do to save your life. Uh, I think that balance needs to be readdressed because we, everyone is an expert in their own, in their own experience. So it levels, I think it balances the scales a little bit. Although one of my, one of my concerns about these kinds of technologies, I think there's a very careful balance that needs to be made um, between not, I mean, thinking about depression, for example, mm-hmm. um, the, the inability to behave proactively and to engage and when you're trying to navigate the symptom yeah exactly it's not easy so i think it's a careful balance of putting enough responsibility on those who want it Mm -hmm. to make sure that they feel like they have empowerment over those over their experiences but not expecting every single person who is crippled with a mental illness Mm -hmm. to solve their own problems and i think it's a very careful message i think it's a very careful balance and that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about it, you know, making sure that what we create is an element of that personalization, isn't it? Yeah, I was gonna say, because actually we can create these digital technologies, but as you were saying earlier, if we were to apply those to everyone as a as kind of a blanket thing, we'd be back to the one size fits all. So, you know, it is the personalization that comes to it, but creating that degree of flexibility within technology isn't easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess when you have people delivering those those interventions, that's where you can then introduce that that level of um, flexibility. Yeah. Um. So we've talked about how the world looks really different from when you were studying at university, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing, well, I might be wrong, that it wasn't kind of a path that you had predicted that you'd go down to end up in that role. So was there one kind of decision or step in your career that meant you took this path? No, I've actively avoided making decisions about my career. Um, uh, I, so I finished my degree and remember thinking to myself, I'm done with studying because I never want to, uh, you know, I'm done. I did a good job. Never again. Never again. Um, But it was sort of in the midst of, we were in the midst of a recession at the time and it was really difficult to find a job. So I did a master's. Yep. And worked part-time and did a part-time master's um, and then at the end of the master's still didn't really know what I wanted to do but I saw a one-year research assistant post being advertised Um, so I thought well I'll apply for that and if I get it it gives me a year to figure out what I'm going to do with my career and I stayed in that post for six years it was a successful post then yeah my one-year contract was extended every year it I did a PhD in that time. I did a doctorate in health psychology in that time. Um, And I remember realizing that research was completely different to how I thought it was. I thought research was all about statistics. And it's not, it's about, in psychology, it's about people. And I loved working with my colleagues 
uh, I work, I've worked in sort of multidisciplinary teams throughout my career, which has been a huge privilege. Um, it was about learning incredible things from incredible people who are all so interesting and so passionate. Um, I feel like it's, it's a huge um, quality of, of what we do is that everyone loves it. No one works in academia for money. Yes. <laughs> we work here for passion. We work here because we genuinely love what we do. So you're surrounded by people who really genuinely love their jobs all the time. And, and that's really infectious. Um, but I also love working with people, with the, with the people who were trying, you know, I'm trying to get better outcomes. And these people are my friends, my family, you know, every day we all know someone who is affected by mental illness and, and yeah. So I, I, I tripped and fell is, yes. is basically how I ended up here. And I've um, exclusively tried to avoid making decisions. I mostly just see what, you know, see what opportunities arise when the existing opportunity is coming to an end. And that's um, pretty much what I've done so far. I think there's a lesson in that for people listening here at the beginning of their careers. That actually, if you make or don't make decisions in that way, you'll end up doing something that you love. Mm. And that's what will keep you going. And I think carrying on on that kind of path, I was going to ask you, you know, in everything that we do, we try and find something or a way to feel proud of what we're doing at work or in our personal lives or whatever. And I wondered if there's like a particular moment in your career or an outcome that you've created or a project that you've worked on that really stands out to you. Mm. Or whether it's maybe more of an overall sense of fulfillment. Um, I have an overall sense of fulfillment. I am incredibly proud of enjoying my work so much. Um, and actually in relation to what you just said about listeners you might have who are sort of undecided mm-hmm. about what they want to do and where they want to go. I think we're, we're very driven by job titles, by yes. labels, and that can be quite paralyzing for some people. Um, and you know, when like your parents say, oh, so what do you do? And you feel like you have to have a job that everyone understands. And I, I yeah. feel like I've never had a job that anyone understands. It's not like I, I maybe a little bit more now I, I can say I'm a lecturer because people yeah. kind of understand that talking extensively about stuff to people is kind of what lecturers do, yeah. educating people, um, mostly just not knowing when to stop talking. Um, <laughs> but until this point, I've been a research assistant, research associate, health psychologist, assistant psychologist, all of these. And it's re- people don't really understand what that is. And so I feel like we're very motivated to have a job that is like teacher, lawyer, doctor extremely clear you can say it and your grandparents will be like oh she's a doctor and she's done well she's done well and she knows what she's doing I think what's what I've realized is much more important isn't what my job is or where my job will take me it's having a job that every day means I'm doing something that brings value yes um and that I, I think is important and it could be sending an email is important one day it could be um you know, helping someone who has been waiting for mental health services for eight years get onto a care pathway is something valuable the next day. So I would focus much more on when you're job hunting, not looking at the job titles, but looking at what you'd actually be doing on a day-to-day basis and whether that would bring you satisfaction, joy and fulfillment. That's what I wanted to say in relation to what you just said. In relation to what you actually asked, I'm very proud to have a job that I enjoy. I very rarely have a day in fact, I, I don't think I've ever had a day where I've just come home thinking this day sucked. There is always something that brings a huge amount of gratification. I'm quite goal-orientated, okay. and this 
career is really well suited to that because our careers are full of um, small wins. Yes. Um, losses, obviously, it's very competitive. Um, you know, getting papers published and peer review and, you know, grant applications that take, you know, ages and then get rejected at the first hurdle. Our job is full of rejection, but it's also full of really small wins, like getting that paper published, getting accepted to a conference, meeting your new um, group of dissertation students and thinking that you're going to really enjoy working with them over the next year. Um, meeting a new colleague who, you know, you're really excited about collaborating with because you've got a similar interest, but different approaches. Um, it's full of small wins and it's quite satisfying for goal orientated people because there's always something to be looking there's forward something to. to reach for. There's always something to reach for and it can be very small, but it could also be really big because it could be, you know, those big grants or, you know, this Lancet paper or whatever it is. So I really like it. There's lots of ways to easily feel fulfilled that are also actually um, quite fun. I think that's really interesting and I think you know you were talking about the small wins and I guess um you have small wins in the sense of your work and the, the research that you work on but also in that day-to-day -day work and both equally as important and I think when you're saying you had a, you've had jobs that you don't really feel like people have understood I think it's those misconceptions that are really important to break down about research because actually you're so right research is about people mm -hmm. especially especially in the, <coughs> the psychology and the health psychology field if the people weren't there we wouldn't be doing the research mm -hmm. um so i'm really glad that we we're able to have you on today to start breaking down those misconceptions especially for people that are listening that might be kind of figuring out their career path or where they want to end up or just rather than where they want to end up, where they want to just be now mm -hmm. and in the next few months. Mm -hmm. So moving on to talking a little bit about the actual research projects you're working on, mm -hmm. is there a big milestone or a smaller milestone that you're working towards at the moment that you're really excited about? Um, yeah, I have a couple of grants which are just kicking off. Um, mm -hmm. They were all sort of awarded at the beginning of the year and now are sort of we're starting to actually do the work. And I'm really excited about um, hiring our research team. We've got research assistants starting, postdocs starting. Um, and that's really exciting because it's those members of the team, the people who are sort of on the ground doing the work um, on a day-to-day -day basis that actually create the create the projects. They're the heart and soul of these projects. Until this, until this point, um, a research project is basically um a lot of researchers and scientists thinking this is a good idea uh let's try and get funding for it trying to get funding for it getting funding for it sometimes um but it's all very hypothetical and it's not until you actually have the people on the ground doing it that it feels like it's turning into um a, a proper piece of research and so i'm really excited because i've got a research assistant starting in a week and a half um, who I'm really looking forward to working with and I'm going to be getting a PhD student um, involved and you know that's something I'm really looking forward to at the moment having those real like focused conversations about how we're going to how we're going to turn our hypothetical thoughts into an actual real project that people are going to be participating in um, back to reaching those goals exactly exactly
And talking about working on research, we know that research always has its challenges as well. Are there any reoccurring hurdles that you have to work to overcome that always seem to pop up? Um, I'm not sure about... Well, there's a few that come to mind. Mm -hmm. I think one of the pressing ones at the moment is that I think digital technologies hold huge potential to help people who use digital technologies. And there's all obviously a wide range of people who don't. Yes. Um, and I think that, you know, the problem of digital exclusion um, is tricky. You know, we don't want to inadvertently create inequality yeah. um, because we are developing things that only support Easy some people. Yeah. yeah. So that's a problem. And most of the research projects I've been involved in so far have not had the diversity in their sample and in, in the participants that we'd like. It's a chronic problem with mental health, well, with health research, but with mental health research, that the people who participate in the research studies are quite different from the people um, you hope to um, help with whatever you create. There's a, there's a divide. In terms of severity of illness or often yeah some in my in my work not so much because typically i recruit from um clinical services so the severity of you know the symptoms of the condition itself tend to be um match what we what we would see in real life but the people from clinical services who tend to agree to participate um usually are a certain age um they tend to be younger um they tend to be female they tend to be white they tend to have a certain level of education. They set, they happen. They tend to have a, a greater um, sort of household income. Yeah. So there are still um, little pockets of the population who are possibly at greater risk, yeah. who are not as typically found in research samples as we'd like to see. And understanding how to overcome what barriers there are to participating for people and how we can start to overcome those, I think is really important. And there's definitely exciting measures underway or, or sort of, um, not measures, there's exciting initiatives underway to try and bridge that divide. Um, but it's a chronic problem. Um, and so that worries me. Um, I think there's also a little bit of it's challenging sometimes to understand what should inform what so if you've got this amazing if you've got a, a research study and you've got a piece of technology or you're creating a piece of technology do you create the technology to meet the needs of the research study or do you design a research study that fits the capabilities of the technology and for me, that's always been a little bit of a a little bit of a tension because you know developing a new product or a new system requires such amount such an incredible amount of resource, of time, of expertise, of money um, that you end up with either something that 
allows you to design the ideal research study but is incredibly expensive or you have to make compromises on your research study to meet what is technologically available um yeah. and that's a bit of a tension and i don't i don't really know what the solution to that is I, I, and as technology continues to advance you know the things that i guess i'm you know i'm maybe waffling a bit but i guess as a researcher i want certain things yeah i have these big dreams and these hopes and I am then often told, actually, that's not technically possible. And then I'm bitterly disappointed. Or it is possible, you but you can't afford it with but your budget. Why, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the age of budget, isn't it? Exactly. So, and I think that's often where academic institutions and sort of higher education research facilities and organisations um, struggle in this field because mm -hmm. our, our, we're trying to compete with incredibly flexible, agile um commercial enterprises that can make decisions at the drop of a hat yeah. um, with very little sort of governance or oversight, whilst we in these large research organisations are sort of trudging along behind with our extremely important governance procedures, uh, meaning that we're years behind on... It's difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. But we also have huge strengths in that, Absolutely. you know, we have yeah, expertise yeah. And, and access to clinical samples and, you know, yeah, so there's strengths, but I, I do feel that tension between technical capabilities that we often can't keep up with. So just to round off, do you have, not to put you on the spot, but do you have any parting words of advice or anything to people listening who might be thinking about entering research? Um, I think that research is amazing and I'm really lucky to have really lucky to have not known what I wanted to do because it's resulted in me having a career so far that's been really varied, really interesting and um, that has been extremely fulfilling so far. So I'm very lucky that I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life when I was 21. Or 22 or whatever um so i would say if you have an opportunity to work in research mm -hmm. try it out it might not be for you um but you might be surprised by how um many skills you can acquire um and you know how much opportunity you get to do a whole range of things that aren't statistics <laughs> you know it's a massive misconception that Stats is the only thing you'll ever do in research, but it's really, really not. Stats are very, very important, but they are a very small part of the overall research process. And, you know, I, I really love collaborating with extremely talented statisticians <laughs> because they are so good at what they do. Um, and I'm good at what I do. And no one needs to be good at everything. Yeah. You find your you find your happy place and then that's what you do. Um, so give it a go it's not all about stats it's about people and people are brilliant i think that is a brilliant note to finish <laughs> on is there any way that people can follow up on your work if they want to have any look at the projects you're involved with or find out what you're doing yeah they can google me perfect they will uh i have a page on the university of sussex webpage. i also was at king's college london for a long time so have some presence on the king's college london web pages 
I'm on Twitter, but I, to be honest, I'm a little bit scared of Twitter. So I mostly just use that to be like, hey, I've got a new paper published. <laughs> so I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not the most um, confident social media person. So I tend to only go on there when I have actually have something to say. Um, but yeah, just Google me and you'll find That's another stuff. digital technology to navigate, isn't it? I social know, media. I know. That's a whole different world. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. It's really great to hear from you. And yeah. Awesome. Okay. And that brings us to the end of another Cam's Digital podcast. I absolutely loved meeting with Dr. Faith Matcham and thought she had some incredible insights. I literally just sat there thinking, I agree with every single word you're saying. Please keep talking. Um, but for now, that is the end of this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you would like to follow up or have a chat with us in the meantime, you can find Cams Digital or GM Digital by Googling. You can also find us on Twitter at Cams underscore digital and on Instagram with the same handle. But for now, without further ado, that is the end of the podcast. So thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you back next time.